From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we crisscross the United States with veteran journalist Linda K. Wertheimer as we explore the battlegrounds where faith and education collide in the public sphere. She's the author of the new book, Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance. And we talk both about her reporting and also her personal experiences with religious exclusion. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Linda K. Wertheimer, a veteran newspaper reporter and former Boston Globe education editor. We're talking about her new book, Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance, which was published by Beacon Press in 2015. During her nearly 30-year journalism career, she was a reporter for the Dallas Morning News and the Orlando Sentinel, as well as for other publications. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, Boston Globe Magazine, and the Atlantic Online, and many other publications. She teaches writing at Grub Street in Boston and has also taught journalism at Boston University. Linda Wertheimer, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. Uh, I'm wondering if you could start out by sort of giving our listeners an overview of the book. What is this book trying to accomplish? Sure. So, Faithhead is really trying to accomplish a couple of different things. The book looks at public schools' efforts around the country to teach about the world's religions. And it often happens in the face of controversy, and I guess not surprisingly, given the times we live in, it often happens over lessons on Islam. And what the book is trying to do is, first of all, really make people aware that, hey, guess what? It's actually legal to teach about the world's religions in public schools. You know, religion can be talked about. It can be taught. It just can't be preached. You know, and that's something that a lot of people don't know. Secondly, through the different places I've traveled, I'm trying to give people a sense of sort of what is the best way, or to address the question, what's the best way to teach about the world's religions, and how young should we start? So those are kind of some of the major themes in the book. Well, you just made a a distinction that I think will be important to frame the conversation, the distinction between teaching and preaching. Help us to sort of understand what, uh, what is going on there. Sure. So... Until the 60s, it was pretty commonplace in the United States that you would have a teacher get in front of the classroom and they might recite Bible verses or lead the kids in prayer. And then in 1963, there was a famous court case, Abington versus Shemp, and it said, no, you know, you can't do that. That's actually promoting a religion. That's promoting one religion. It was Christianity. That's illegal. You can't, you can't preach. You can't recite Bible verses. But what you can do, and, they, and the judge said, the justice said that in the Supreme Court case, you can teach about different religions. You can use the Bible to teach about literature. You can use the Bible, you can teach a Bible as history class, and you can teach about the different religions. And, and the justice even said, you know, it might as well be an imperative that in order to be an educated society, we learn about the world's religions and the role they play. Well, some of my listeners are going to pipe up at this point, and they're going to say, well, America is a Christian nation. It was founded by Christians, and so what would be the problem that someone would be preaching in a public school classroom? What, what's wrong with that? Well, first of all, America is not a Christian nation. And in fact, if you think of the people who founded this country, they had very strong feelings about the separation of church and state and about religious freedom. They wanted religious freedom. They didn't want to say, you must observe this particular religion. So... We are not a Christian nation. I mean, it's something I often hear in some of these controversies, and it's just simply not true. Well, and so where does that misperception come from? When we, when we think about uh, the people that would say that America is a Christian nation, if, if the history doesn't line up with that, why is that misperception so prevalent? I think because we are a majority Christian country. I, I think that our country often sends mixed signals. You know, Christmas is a national holiday. So I think people could take that and say, well, yeah, so we're a Christian country, aren't we? You know, everyone gets Christmas off. But I also just think that some people, it's a philosophy. They may know that, like, technically that's not true, but they believe it anyway. 
Well, in your in your book, you you cite several examples from even recent history, and even in some cases your own personal history, of moments where teachers in the public school system have crossed the line. They've they've put Christmas trees into their classrooms, or right. they've you have an entire chapter on on the church lady, the woman that came yeah. in with the little the little felt pictures to sort of explain yeah. the stories of Jesus. So. Help us to understand, first of all, the way that, that ideally a public school classroom is supposed to be. Are there bright lines about what can and cannot be done in a public school classroom, and how are those lines being blurred? Okay, yes, there are bright lines. Teachers shouldn't promote a particular religion in any way. They shouldn't celebrate religious holidays in the classroom, and, they, and many still do. Since many of us were children, we can think of you know school parties for Christmas and for Easter and things like I mean, if you grew up in the 60s and 70s, that was still very, very popular in a lot of places. Today, it's less popular. I think that there's been a lot of work, particularly by Charles Haynes at the First Amendment Center in Washington. He has done an incredible amount of work to create guides on what is legal and what is not when it comes to religion in the public schools. And the emphasis is that, you know, you can educate about the holidays, but you shouldn't be celebrating them. And where those lines still get blurred are often in very evangelical areas of the country or rural areas of the country where if there are religious minorities, people aren't aware of them. I mean, there were cases even, I think, this past year where a school superintendent was sticking by that, well, yes, we can have this play that has kids um, reenacting the nativity scene, and, and we can do that as a celebration of Christmas. You know, if it was some kind of educational thing, it's different. Like if they were to say they're going to teach about Christmas as part of a unit on Christianity and they're going to explain what the nativity scene is, that's okay. But if you're going to promote it as a belief and that you should believe it, that's not okay. There's so many examples of teachers blurring those lines. But on the positive side, I think there's many schools that have realized, well, you know, we're not supposed to celebrate. We can teach about the holidays. We can even do a concert where we'll have some Christmas songs, but we might have Hanukkah songs or songs of other cultures as well. Maybe it's a sacred music concert, but it's not a Christmas concert, and we're not all coming out in our Christmas garb. That tug and pull still exists, but I think things are a lot better today than they were you know, 30, 40 years ago on that score. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're talking today with Linda K. Wertheimer, and we're discussing her new book, Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance, published in 2015 by Beacon Press. Well, in your book, you mention several people that you interact with, and in, in light of what you were just saying, one of, the, one of the teachers that you interact with was raised Baptist and then converted to Catholicism, and she makes the statement to you at some point in, in your interviewing of her that her faith is just who she is. And if she wants to get to know her students and she wants her students to feel comfortable with her, she feels like she has to sort of wear her faith on her sleeve. You know, this is not an atypical position. I know people that went into teaching in the public system specifically because they thought it was a godless system and they wanted to be a godly presence <laughs> in a godless system. But so where do we find the kind of clear guidelines about about how and when it's appropriate for a person to share their, their faith? And why would it be inappropriate for a teacher in particular to say, standing up in front of a class, I'm a Christian and I think it's the best thing in the world? So I remember that teacher, and actually she's careful. She has no shyness about letting her students know that she's Christian because she said that's a part of who I am. But she doesn't say that's the best thing in the world. So she does know I'm not supposed to promote it as better than the other religions. And, in fact, this teacher, unlike some of the others in the same school, sort of came to terms with that, you know, we shouldn't be painting Easter eggs anymore to celebrate Easter in the classroom because now I'm teaching a unit about different religions. So for her to say I'm Christian, there's nothing illegal, you know, she can say it. I mean, teachers have religious freedom, too. They can wear a cross to school if they want to. I, I think it would be wonderful if there was some consistency that for teachers on how you handle your personal religion in the classroom, like do you talk about it or don't you talk about it. I don't really think it's appropriate to talk about it unless it's somehow, you know, if a student asks you what religion you are, then I think it's your personal choice to whether you want to say it. Some of the teachers in Modesto, California, where I traveled, they um, specifically would not say what religion they were. And, in fact, one of them was kind of proud of it. He was an evangelical Christian, and he let the students guess. And someone would say Buddhist. And to him, that meant I'm doing a fabulous job 
teaching about the world's religions because they can't detect a bias. Um, but I think I think this is a really kind of sticky wicket <laughs> in the public schools. And there there was a recent article, I believe, in the Washington Post about sort of this movement among very religious Christian teachers who want to sort of promote their faith in the classroom and they're, and they're getting training on how they can do it sort of legally. Um, and, and I think it's a really kind of scary sort of thing that there's a trend to try and somehow, can we do that? <laughs> you know, they, yeah, they could wear a cross, but they shouldn't be promoting their religion to their students. You, you just said that you find that scary. Uh, would you mind yeah. sort of relating what you find scary in that? Yeah, because I think then you are, there are going to be students in every classroom, even if you're in a so-called majority Christian community, there's going to be students who aren't that religious, who might be atheist, who might be agnostic, who might be another religion, and then you are forcing your religion upon them. I mean, you're putting them in the same situation I was in my public school, where I was like one of the only Jewish kids other than my brothers. And, you know, women came in and taught Christianity classes, and it was really clear that if you weren't Christian, there was something wrong with you and that you were supposed to be Christian. And school should not be a place where you're made uncomfortable because you're not in the majority religion. It's not a place to promote one religion over the other. And I think, it, you know, it can get really intimidating for those who are in the religious minority or those who don't believe that way to have it in their face all the time. Well, I, I want to come back to your personal experiences in, in a few moments because I, I, I think that that's a very interesting piece of of what what brought this book into being. But let's stay with this other track for just a second. Yeah. So when we're talking about evangelical Christians um, we're and, and, and proselytizing uh, believers of any faith, actually, oftentimes yeah. what, what characterizes them would be a worldview that says whether or not this atheist, this agnostic, this Buddhist, this Hindu, this Muslim, this Jewish person in my classroom knows that they're lost, I know that they're lost, and I owe it to them because I love them and I care about them to reach out to them and make sure that they know the truth with a capital T. Um, and And that that would be the most important educative moment that could happen because you're not just educating them for for an instant, you're educating them not just for a lifetime, you are educating them for eternity. And I, I don't mean to, to make light of that. I think that there are some people that actually believe that. Well, yes. Um, so Modesto, California, where they require all the high school students to take a world religions course, it happens to be in what's considered California's Bible Belt. And I clearly remember one of the teachers telling me that early on there was an evangelical Christian teacher who believed the way you're describing who was asked to teach this new course and said, I just can't do it. <laughs> she said, it just doesn't, you know, I can't do it because I want to promote, you know, I was I was raised to believe that my way is the only way, essentially, and that I have to make people believers. Well, conversely, you know, there's the other teacher I just described who even while he's evangelical Christian, he's able to understand what his role is as a teacher. Um, so... You know, I think that maybe they, if they're teachers with those kind of feelings, they probably need to be teaching in a private Christian school rather than a public school because it's just not appropriate in a public school, and nor is it legal. You know, that is, that is clearly violating the separation of church and state if you're trying to proselytize to your students during the public school day. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Linda K. Wertheimer. She's a veteran newspaper reporter and a former Boston Globe education editor. We're talking about her new book, Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance, published in 2015 by Beacon Press. We'll be back in a moment. Hey there, listeners. I want to take a moment and tell you about our partner for producing this show, the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. It sounds like an old-timey name, and that's because it's an old-timey organization. They got started in 1908 doing live events here in the Chicago downtown area. In the 1920s, they went coast-to-coast on the radio, and in the 1950s, they started out as one of the first religious television programs anywhere ever. 
and they're still doing radio and television. In addition to co-producing this program, the Sunday Evening Club makes regular hour-long documentaries for PBS that focus on issues like violence, immigration reform, health care, and more, highlighting the good work being done by faith communities as they try to make these situations better for the people of Chicago. You can find out more about the Sunday Evening Club and watch and listen to all the programs they've been producing for more than 70 years at their website, csec.org. That's csec.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Linda K. Wertheimer. She's a veteran newspaper reporter and a former Boston Globe education editor. We're discussing her new book, Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance, published in 2015 by Beacon Press. So I'm going to talk a little bit about my own background for a moment. I was raised as an atheist in what I like to call the rust on the buckle of the Bible belt in deep South Georgia, South Alabama. I was uh, I grew up right on the border there on the Chattahoochee River, and I have a very distinct memory uh, at, in going to school in Phoenix City, Alabama, uh, being out on the playground, I think I was in fifth grade, and at some point it came out, I'm not even sure how it came out, that I didn't believe in God. And by the end of by the end of that recess period, it was all over the playground, and by the end of the day, it was all over my grade, and by the next day, it was all over the school. And for the, wow. ne- the next two years that I was there, I would have people of all ages coming up to me on the bus or in the bathroom or in the hallways uh, asking me where the universe came from and, uh, and whether or not I believed in God. And when I said that I didn't and that my family didn't, I was informed that I was going to hell. And, uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I, I'm aware that you also, in, in the genesis of this book, had some sort of foundational experiences that helped shape kind of why you were wanting to talk about these sorts of questions. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about what your background was with regard to these sorts of issues. Sure. Yes, that sounds very parallel to some of my experiences. So my family is Jewish, and I was born in western New York State in the Finger Lakes region, and from like zero to nine, you know, we were in a community where there were a couple of Jewish temples. People knew what Jews were. You know, there was some diversity. And there, were, there was nothing in our public schools that came even close to promoting Christianity. We moved to Finley, Ohio. And the school district I went to was just outside Finley. And that very first week of school, I was in my fourth grade classroom, and in walks this lady, call her the church lady, <laughs> and she came in with this flannel graph, and she started putting figures of Jesus and his disciples on the flannel graph and telling us a story about Jesus and how wonderful he was and the miracles he performed, and she had us sing Jesus Loves Me, and this was right in the middle of my fourth grade classroom, middle of the day, and then, you know, after about a half hour of teaching this, she left. I went home, I told my mom, my sixth grade brother had the same experience in his classroom that day, because she would teach, I think it was K through six, same class. And my parents complained, and the school superintendent said, well, you know, the school board wants it this way, so, you know, we can excuse your kids. Well, we were the only Jewish family that we know of in our school system, and maybe one of three in the Finley area. (laughs) Because we were such a minority, my parents decided not to pursue it legally. And so every week I was excused. And what this was, there was this, they they were these women, and they were hired by local churches, They'd raise the money so they could come in and teach the kids Bible studies, Christian Bible studies, and it happened every week. I start, you know, I would come, you know, I'd be in class. The church lady would come in, and I would walk out, and then the kids noticed, you know, that I didn't go to this class. So just like what happened to you, kids would come up to me and they're like, "Well, why don't you go?" And I'd say, "Well, I'm Jewish," and they'd say, "Well, what's that? Do you believe in Jesus?" And I'd say, "Well, no." And they'd say, "Well, you're going to hell," and I got that kind of thing all the way from 4th through 12th grade. I had kids trying to convert me on the way home from basketball practice. What that left with me at a very young age was, well, what if instead of teaching us or promoting just one religion in the school, what if instead they'd actually try to, to teach us about different religions? Could that have made a difference? I, you know, I knew as I grew older that, of course, it would reduce ignorance, but could it make a difference in terms of reducing the kind of intolerance that I experienced? and in some cases anti-Semitism as well. I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just staying with that for a moment. And so 
So those moments when you when you left class and when an accommodation was made for you, legally the school board thought, well, this settles the problem. But that didn't settle the problem. And I wonder if you would if you would talk about what it was like to be a student, what it was like to be a, a, a child who was experiencing that kind of imposed difference and what that felt like. Yeah. So it it made me feel ostracized a little bit and and isolated because you know, I was the only one leaving that class. I definitely felt different. There were there was nobody in our school. Everyone was white. That was like the only difference. You know, it was like religion was a difference. So I felt it and I felt it frequently. You know, because like a lot of the social things at school were around the campus youth for Christ group. You know, there was a lot of things that centered around Christianity in the churches in the town. And then the school was making it worse. And there was a youth pastor who would come to the lunchroom and try and get recruit kids to come to the Christian youth club and say, hey, you want to come, da 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 you know. And I'd be sitting there, of course I don't want to go. <laughs> Why is this guy in my lunchroom? So it, you know, definitely set me apart. And I, I had them back to my high school reunions. And interestingly, you know, not everyone even remembers this occurring. So it was something I experienced very internally. And I did. There was some outward teasing, but it was it was really that sense of feeling different that kind of clung to me all the way through. Well, and one thing that that strikes me is that you know you are talking about these issues in a very contemporary fashion, but we can go back to and I'm thinking of just one example. So I was raised atheist. I'm now Catholic, and so this is a, a historical event that resonates with me. The issues around Dagger John Hughes, the Archbishop in New York City in the middle 19th century, he was having the experience of Irish immigrants coming to America, and they were Catholic. But then when they went into the public school system, they were taught how to be good Protestants. And he saw this as a, yeah. a form of sort of cultural erasure and an intentional one. And, and when he tried to raise issues about this, he hit some of the same roadblocks and impediments that you describe in the book. This is by no means a new thing, but I wonder if, if you wouldn't mind sort of talking about the long view of these kind of issues around public education in America. Sure. I mean, there, there have been riots over these things, you know, in earlier centuries. So there's always been a tussle over how do we handle religion in the public schools in America. And in the beginning, it was the Protestant way. And then I think when, you know, when there was a bigger Catholic presence, things did start to change. Some of the early cases that I looked at, like in, in 1948, there was this case called McCullum versus Board of Education. The classes that I, that I experienced in public school, those first started appearing in the 1920s. And it was actually created because people believed that there weren't enough church kids. You know, it was a way to try and make sure we give them moral values and that kind of thing. And so a lot of schools would do it sort of during the school day but in a church. And then there were others who did it in the school, which in 1948 was declared illegal. I'll just tell you a little bit about the 1948 case. It was called McCollum versus Board of Education. And the McCollum family were atheists. They didn't want their son attending the class, so he would sit outside the class. But he started getting beaten up, and a Jewish kid also got beaten up, according to some of the stories about the case. And ultimately, the court ruled in favor of the family, and they said, this is illegal. You cannot have these religious education classes during the school day in the classroom. And I think everyone presumed at the moment that meant you just couldn't have them, period, during the school day. In 1952, there was another case, and in that case, they said, well, it's okay if you do it during the school day as long as it's not on school grounds. And, and justices argued against it and said, you're still going to cause the same kind of isolation and ostracism for the kids. So in this case, what would happen is the Jewish atheist Catholic kids, who, or whoever didn't want to take that class, would stay in the school and everyone else leaves. So you still have that separation. But that's still happening today. And then I guess if I fast forward to the 60s in the case I already talked about with kicking school prayer out of schools, in the 60s, for a while, there was a movement to try and do more to provide education about different religions in the public schools because they saw it as part of creating literate Americans, religious literate Americans. And there was a movement that kept going for a while, and then it started to die in the 80s when we had culture wars, when, when you know we were, there were talks about, well, let's have creationism in the school and evolution in the school. And there was a move away from anything about religion at all in the curriculum. And then in the 90s, it started to come back as states started establishing standards and saying, well, you can't teach about world history without talking about religion. And so now we're sort of in this movement to try and bring it back and provide more training and do more. 
So that's sort of, I guess that's sort of the long view. I don't know if that's what we were looking for, but that's the historical look in a nutshell. That, that's, that's an excellent overview, and, and I'm, I appreciate you doing that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Linda K. Wertheimer, and she's a veteran newspaper reporter and former Boston Globe education editor. We're discussing her new book, Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance, published in 2015 by Beacon Press. So our offices where I'm recording this, we're basically right across the street almost from the Daly Center, which is the big public square here in Chicago. And every mm-hmm. every uh, holiday season in the winter, uh, that public square is filled with a, a winter festival, but it also has a group that puts up a large cross and a group that puts up a large menorah and a group of atheists that put up a large A. And... <laughs> That's that's an example of the kind of sharing of the public space for religious issues. But when we think about the public school, uh, we see that the public school is sort of an acute cauldron of emotions around these issues. And I wonder, what is it particularly in your experience that makes the public schools such a, a, a flashpoint for anger and, and high emotions around the notion of sharing the space with multiple religions? So I that it's actually more of a minority of parents that end up kicking up a fuss that, that becomes bigger. From, from all the controversies that I wrote about, you would it'd be like one parent who would protest, and then it would get picked up by a blogger or something, and then it would just go viral. So it wasn't always the whole community that was opposed to having instruction about many religions in the school. Um, I don't think there's actually a lot of opposition to teaching children about different religions, particularly in the middle of high school level. You, know, you hear a little more, more complaints in elementary school. And it, so one sentiment that I've heard from parents who are nervous about this is if they haven't talked to their children about religion at all, they don't want the school doing it. If they are very devout X, Y, or Z, pick your flavor, they're threatened by the thought of their kid learning about another religion, and might their kid then want to sample something else. But the, but that's the minority that I'm hearing. That's a minority view. Where the, the clashes that I have seen have been less about this like, concept of whether we should teach about many religions and more over, oh, my God, they're teaching about Islam. And how can they teach about Islam um, in a fair, objective way? And... Why are they teaching about it at all? You know, and that that's, there was a lot of Islamophobia mixed in. So it was more that sentiment. I would say when I'm giving talks about my book, though, I do sometimes hear from people about, I don't think they should be dealing with religion at all in the public schools, period. And I do hear that sentiment. And it's often not necessarily from the parents, it's sometimes from an older set who think it's just too risky to teach about religion in the public schools and not really aware that it's happening anyway. I was going to say, w- what I'm hearing in your answer is that it's, it's not that there's religion and that there's secularism. It almost sounds as if there are competing views of what secularism means. So you mentioned a moment ago, a moment ago that, that certain older commentators are saying, well, we shouldn't teach religion at all. And then there are others that are saying, no, we should teach religion in a sort of objective, balanced way. And so I wonder if you you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about what these different types of secularism that you've encountered are and what their characteristics are. I'm sorry, different kinds of secularism? So different different ways of approaching the question of how we should be neutral about religion in public space. One one that might say we shouldn't talk about it at all and one that would say we should talk about it in a balanced way. Right. So, I mean, I guess I'm going to think of my chapter about how young is too young where I look at a school in Wichita and they teach about different religions from first through fifth grade using a curriculum that is used in actually hundreds of schools around the country which isn't really that many when you think of it um, but for example you know, they'll teach about Judaism, Christianity and Islam in the first grade in a very simple way and this family that opposed it who happens to be a religious family but they felt very strongly that this did not belong in the public schools, and partly because it contrasted with their beliefs. So there was that feeling. 
I saw less opposition from people who were atheists, um, interestingly, about this, because they were, you know, they think it's good to learn about it as part of being educated. So you sort of have these two camps. You have these people who are threatened by the idea of bringing religion into public schools. There's also a feeling from some quarters that teachers are just not equipped to handle this. You know, why should we put this in the hands of teachers? They, they can't handle this, you know, so, there, so there's that fear. Um, and then on the, on the flip side of it, what you have are people who strongly believe that how can you teach about India without talking about Hinduism or, or Sikhism or even Islam, because all of those religions exist in India, and you would talk about Judaism too. And how can you teach about the Middle East without talking about different religions and the role they play in the society there? And then there's also this part about who lives in our community and, and what is our you know what is who lives in our country who lives in the world. So there's both this idea of we need to teach about it as part of history as a part of geography as just a part of a society that we live in. And so those are really the two different views out there, I believe. And I'm fascinated by what you just said the the statement that you made that there are some who believe that maybe teachers are not equipped to educate our young about this, but also in the book, and there's that view, but then there's also the view that, well, maybe we shouldn't also be inviting in experts to speak about their faith. <laughs> and I wonder if you take a moment and speak about some of the controversies around uh, the invited experts that come into the classroom yeah. to sort of take over where the area of expertise of the teacher leaves off. Right. And so a lot of times teachers want to bring in Muslim clergy, Jewish clergy, Buddhist, or you know, someone who's of a different religion because they're not of that religion and they think it gives the students sort of a human face. But they also think it, it gives the students someone who may, you know, who truly knows more about that religion than the teacher. And one of the huge controversies in the book happened in Tampa, Florida. They invited the world, it was the AP World History Teachers and World History and also the Comparative World Religions class. They invited this guy, Son Shibley, who's the head of CARE Florida, which is a Muslim civil rights organization, and he also happens to be an imam. And they invited him in to give a talk about the basics of Islam, which he did. And as far as I know, there was absolutely no opposition to what he said. It was very basic. And, he, you know, he did talk about going to Mecca. He talked about why my beard is the length it is and things like that. And the kids loved it. From, you know, I interviewed many, many kids. They all loved what they got out of this. And then a couple of weeks later, a parent was in his car with his daughter, and she happened to mention the speaker. He's like, well, where's he from? And the parent got very upset about it for a couple of reasons. He was less upset that the guy was an imam. He was upset that the guy came from CARE, which, he, you know, there are bloggers out there and other groups out there who say CARE is associated with terrorists. There's no proof of that. So there was a little bit of Islamophobia stuff mixed in. But interestingly, he didn't care that the guy was an imam which folks at the First Amendment Center as well as religion scholars would take issue with. They're like, they think you need to be careful about bringing in clergy because what is a person's role when they are a preacher or a rabbi? You know, it's to promote their religion. That's what they do. They're an advocate for their faith. So how can they give a totally objective look at their faith? So that question comes up. The religion scholar, the American Academy of Religion, which is, represents religion scholars around the country and world, actually produced guidelines on guest speakers, and their recommendation was to not to avoid to not ask clergy because of what I just said, you know, because they uh, are trained to promote their own faith, and if you're going to ask someone, try to find someone as neutral as possible, and they recommend religion scholars, and so. That's what happened there. And then the other issue is if, you know, you take kids on field trips, who's giving the talk at the field trip? And sometimes it's lay people and sometimes it's the rabbi. We're speaking today with Linda K. Wertheimer. We're discussing her new book, Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance, published in 2015 by Beacon Press. If you'd like to find out more about the book or Linda K. Wertheimer or some of the resources we've been discussing today, you can do that at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. Each week we hear from listeners like you who write in to tell us that they love the show, and a lot of you ask us what you can do to help support us. 
Well, first of all, thank you for listening. The number one thing you can do to help support us is to tell your friends about the show. That word of mouth is so incredibly important. And if you listen to us through iTunes, there's a second thing you can do. They give you the means to give reviews to the show, and it would be fantastic if you took a moment to write a review for us. I hear five stars are very popular. You can also give us money. Earlier in the show, I mentioned that we work with the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. So many good things come from that partnership, but one of the best by far is that your donations are tax-deductible. You can find out more about supporting us at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, and at csec.org, the website for the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Thank you for your support, and thank you, as always, for listening. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Linda K. Wertheimer. She's a veteran newspaper reporter and former Boston Globe education editor. She's the author of the new book, Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance, published in 2015 by Beacon Press. So one of the things that struck me about the structuring of this book is that the reader really sees these events unfolding in real time. You aren't looking backwards on recent history. It's almost as if recent history is unfolding around you. I wonder if you'd uh, take a moment and sort of tell our readers about kind of how you went about the process of reporting this book and what your strategy was and, and, and kind of what the what the itinerary was. Sure. Um well, so one thing was all along was looking at this as a journey and as a narrative nonfiction book. So when you're doing narrative nonfiction, which is a nice little buzzword in writing, you you want readers to experience what has happened in sort of a in a storytelling fashion. So I tried, you know, like so, like in the case of the first chapter in Lemberton, I really tried to take people through what happened and build up to something, and that was the goal in every chapter that there, you know, that that it would that you would kind of see things as they unfolded. And, and I'm not going to give away all the answers in the beginning because I want to take you along with me. I wanted to try and give people sort of a spread across the country, so Kansas, Ohio, um, Florida. And I was also just keeping an eye out for where were things happening. And at the same time, I guess another thing is if you notice in reading the book, there's different things that happened at each place. It's not the same controversy. You know, there's a controversy over guest speaker. There's a controversy over trying on burkas. There's a controversy over, actually, a bulletin board was another one, and I may be missing one, in the field trip. So it, it was different different themes. So I don't know if that helps answer your question. And then I, you know, it's looking, and then for me, there was a huge link between Wichita and my own experience, because Wichita was what I wish had happened in Van Buren, you know, that there had, in Ohio, that there had been instruction for us about different religions when we were young. Earlier in the conversation, you self-disclosed that you were raised Jewish, and I don't know if you're if you're still a, a, a practicing member of that faith or not, and you certainly don't have to disclose that now, but I'm wondering if along the way uh, you felt uh, any pressure in any of these uh, situations any pressure to convert? Did anyone try and convert you? Did anyone try and proselytize to you in the midst of these? Sure, yes. <laughs> um, well, so first of all, I should say that my family was not that religious. We definitely were very strong cultural Jews, and we identified as Jewish. We had menorah in our house, and <laughs> we ate bagels. <laughs> you know, like we were, we were kind of assimilated American Jews, and we did very much the basics, I did go to Sunday school until I was about 12, so I wasn't oblivious to Judaism, but I wasn't, I was not a spiritual Jew at all as a child, and so religion wasn't a huge part of my life as a child. I did become, it wasn't until my 30s that I really sort of became more of a practicing Jew, but in Ohio, yes, I had, I chronicled this in my book where there is a, I'm, I'm giving someone a ride home from basketball, and they are, they're upset that I don't believe in Jesus. And they were definitely proselytizing to me the whole time. They wanted me to believe in Jesus because there was sincere worry that if I didn't believe in Jesus, I wasn't going to go to heaven. You know, they were worried for me. And so, yes, I did get that. I mean, I also had people proselytize to me while I was reporting on the book, too. <laughs> um, and I didn't identify myself as Jewish to this particular pastor, but I guess he could tell <laughs> that I wasn't a believer, maybe because I wasn't 
praying with them or something. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely had people try to convert me. A moment ago, you said that you were having an experience where you were driving someone home and they had a genuine anguish about whether or not you'd be in, you'd be in heaven. So as a person outside that narrative, the Christian notions of salvation and heaven and hell just don't, don't map onto the way that you view the religious world. How did you perceive their anguish for you in that moment? I wonder if you could sort of describe kind of what your takeaway from that experience was. You know, so if you think of the time I was a teenager, and so I was annoyed. <laughs> you know, I wasn't thinking that deeply about it, to be honest, as a teenager. I was offended and I was annoyed. I mean, I think as an adult, if someone tried to do that, I might, I would still be annoyed, but I might be able to have a deeper conversation with them if I felt like it. <laughs> but I, that, that always offended me when people felt like they had to try and convert me to their religion. But now, like, if someone comes to my, like, if the Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, I'm very nice, and I say, no, thank you, but I'm not rude. Um, I mean, I think I've kind of come to an understanding that they truly believe that. You know, I have to respect their beliefs. I wish they would respect mine enough to understand why I don't want them to try to convert me. But at the same time, I think I can now, as an adult, better respect their beliefs than I could when I was a child. To what do you attribute that lack of respect? I mean, where is it? Where's the disconnection that says when you're when you're sitting across the table from someone that they will not listen to you in terms of the integrity of your own worldview? Where where do you think that comes from? I think, particularly among young people, it comes largely from ignorance. They don't know a lot about other religions besides their own, and I didn't necessarily either. But like, they didn't know. I'm sure because no one taught them that that Judaism, that Christianity, had actually grown out of Judaism. That Jesus was a Jew. You know, I don't think they knew those things, and I don't think they knew enough about Jews having their own houses of worship, and we had our own sets of beliefs about life and death. You know, we believed in God too. <laughs> you know, if you're an observant Jew, um, so. I, I would add that I belong to a group now called Daughters of Abraham, and they're Muslim, Jews, and Christians. And very, every single one of us, it's a book club. And in order to be in the club, you have to have a fairly strong connection to your faith. I don't think there are any atheists in our group. Um, but we all have a mutual respect for each other's beliefs and understand that each of us has made our own decision about this is our religion and this is how we feel about it. And that's okay. And we read books together. Like, we've read books about Jesus. We've read books about Judaism and Islam and all the different faiths. And we can talk about them very civilly and with a lot of respect. And I think kids can do that, too. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Linda K. Wertheimer. And she's a veteran newspaper reporter and former Boston Globe education editor. She's the author of the new book, Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance, published in 2015 by Beacon Press. So you've been reporting on religion and religious issues in America for a while. And I'm wondering, as, you've, as you look back over the, the sweep of that, of that career of reporting, what should we see in the crystal ball coming ahead? Because there's one narrative that would say we're progressing, we're getting more tolerant, everything is, is sort of unfolding, and, and we're moving from, to use your word, from ignorance to knowledge of the wide spectrum of religions that are out there. But yet you, you choose to intentionally title your book about about faith education, you highlight that we're in an age of intolerance. And so that almost seems to push against that narrative of progress. So help to unpack that for us. What, what is, what's, what's awaiting us in the next 5, 10, 15 years around these issues? So I'm both optimistic and pessimistic. Um, optimistic because schools, even in the face of these controversies, stick to their guns. They continue to teach about the world's religions. They continue to believe in what they're doing. And so... You know, they're not abandoning chip. The teach, there are teachers out there working really hard to try and do this. I, I'm optimistic because there are people out there like Diane Moore at Harvard University's Divinity School and Charles Haynes at the First Amendment Center and miscellaneous teachers I've met who want to give teachers more training so they can do a better job of this. I'm optimistic because we have state standards that require teaching about the world's religions now, and we didn't have those before the 1990s. So that all gives me a sense of optimism. 
but I'm also have some pessimism because of what's happening right now. And I've written a string of op-eds in the last six to seven months. You know, you have Republican presidential candidates out there picking on Muslims, and it's not rooted in education. You know, a lot of what they're saying, you know, like, well, we can't have a Muslim as president, or, you know, we need to borrow them all from the country. They have no sense of the diversity within Islam and that they're Muslims from around the world. That seems to be stirring up a lot of Islamophobia and intolerance, and it's not just towards Muslims. I've written a lot about incidents of anti-Semitism. So I'm pessimistic and optimistic. That, that's why when I say age of intolerance, it's because there's still stuff happening. And then when you look at those controversies that happened, it was intolerance and ignorance largely driving those. So can we get past that? I'm optimistic that if the schools keep working on this, if we can get more training to teachers, that things will improve. But I think it's going to be a constant tug of war. and It's going to be a tug and pull, too, because you also have people pushing very hard to try and get more religiosity into the public schools. So let's say that some of our listeners have young children or even uh, sort of middle school-aged children or high school-aged children who are going through the public school system. Uh, What advice would you give to those parents about how to navigate these questions? What should they be on the lookout for? Uh, what, what, should, sure. what should be points where they should draw lines and take stands and what should they let go? Sort of, uh, sort of how would you tell them to navigate this? Well, first of all, I would find out what is your school doing like in terms of teaching about religion. Do they do it in the sixth grade or seventh grade? And then do they do it again in world history? It's going to vary somewhat by school, even if the state standards are there. You know, school districts do sometimes have some latitude in how they do it and how they construct it. So find out what they're doing and educate yourself. Um, don't freak out if your kid brings home a worksheet on Islam or Hinduism or Judaism or Christianity. Find out what it's about. Um, I think, conversely, schools can do a better job of informing parents that this is a part of the curriculum because a lot of these controversies happen because the parents weren't aware. So I think as a parent, inform yourself. Find out what's in the curriculum. And don't freak out. <laughs> but do be on the lookout and make sure, you know, talk to your kid about it. I mean, is the teacher teaching about this objectively? Are they promoting one religion over the other, or are they doing it in an unbiased, objective way? How are they teaching about Judaism and Christianity? You know, how are they doing it? It's okay for you to ask your kid questions. In terms of the younger kids, it's less common for kids to get instruction about the world's religions in elementary school. It's more common to deal with a holiday issue there, and I think it's perfectly fine for parents to speak up if they feel like teachers are stepping over the line. They can go to the First Amendment Center website. I think it's firstamendmentcenter.org, but if you Google First Amendment Center, you can find it, and you can look about what are the guidelines for handling religion in the public schools and, and kind of know what's legal and what's not. The other thing I feel parents can do is if your school isn't doing anything about religion in in the elementary schools, you can get books from the public library about different religions and read your kids' story. It's Ramadan Curious George is coming out in May. You know, there are are books out there that aren't preachy that can teach your kids things about different religions. So I think there's a myriad of things that parents can do. So the, the Pew Research Center uh, several years ago came out with a what they call the Religious Landscape Survey for America, and they've been updating this yes. over the last several years. One of the, the most startling uh, sets of data that came out of that, that wide-sweeping uh, research study that they did was, well, sort of two pieces. One is that most people who have a current religious identity were not born into that religious identity. So a, a tremendous shift... Uh, that we can mm-hmm. see in, in the demographics that people who are currently something, they came there from somewhere else. The other piece that has, that has gotten a lot of press lately is the notion of the rise of the nuns. And I'm not talking about Catholic religious sisters, but those that have no religious identification at all. Um, and yes. I'm, and I'm, I'm wondering in your own sort of reporting, um, how did you encounter those two trends? Did you see a lot of people in your in your reporting and in these various communities who were in states of transition and that was causing them anxiety? Uh, no. I mean, I, I mean, of course, I was spending a lot of time talking with youth. I mean, what I saw, you know, I saw interfaith families. I, you know, I, I met kids who considered themselves atheists and maybe one parent was Buddhist and they were atheists. 
what I met was a variety of people. Um, I, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't looking at the religious shifts in the country that much. I, I, I certainly mentioned in my book about the rise of the nuns. Um, and what I talk about, too, is how the diversity of religion is changing. You know, there's a lot more diversity. There, there are more Muslims in our country. There are more Hindus and sort of the role that plays and why it makes it even more important for us to learn about different religions. And when you come to the fact that soon there will be a, maybe a quarter of Americans who don't affiliate with any religion, and what does that mean in terms of this conversation? I, I mean, for me, what it, it, it's actually sort of an... It means something kind of interesting because when you look at sort of knowledge about different religions and how people do on quizzes, the people who do the best tend to be Jews and agnostics and Mormons. And so people who currently don't affiliate with any religion do have an interest in learning about it. So that's sort of a positive thing. So, I mean, those are things that I saw in the, in the terms of what I was reporting. But I didn't, I mean, in terms of anxiety, I hear it more, you know, like when I'm giving talks, people will often ask me, what does this all mean for the atheist agnostics? You know, we're teaching about religion, but there's all these people who don't affiliate with any. And I said, well, I'm not hearing from them that they think it's a bad thing. If anything, some of the families I interviewed who consider themselves atheists like the fact that their kids learning something about religion since they're not giving them anything. So, A little over two centuries ago... Uh our founding fathers and mothers uh, began what we might call a bold experiment in the mixture of religion with the First Amendment and its protections uh, against the establishment of religion and the protections of religious practice. And so my final question to you is, uh, 200 years later, in your view as a reporter and what you've seen, is the experiment still working? <laughs> I love the question. Um I don't know if it's ever completely worked because religion, religion is not completely, as, as, as preachy stuff, religion has not completely been separated from the schools. So I, I think we're, we're not there yet, is what I would say. We're closer than we were probably 200 years ago, but we have a long ways to go. Well, Linda K. Wertheimer, this is one of my favorite subjects to talk about. I really enjoyed your book, and I just, I'm just i so thankful to get a chance to talk to you today. Thank you for taking a few minutes to speak to us. Well, thank you very much. I liked it, too. We've been speaking today with Linda K. Wertheimer. She's a veteran newspaper reporter and former Boston Globe education editor. She's the author of Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance, published by Beacon Press in 2015. During her nearly 30-year journalism career, she's been a reporter for the Dallas Morning News and the Orlando Sentinel, as well as for other publications. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, the Boston Globe Magazine, the Atlantic Online, and many other publications. She teaches writing at Grub Street in Boston and has taught journalism at Boston University. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijith. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.